0: sorrows of all who are with us, both in this beautiful space and online, we lift up a collective wish for peace and for new light. This morning, we will hear the stories of four people, members of the Fourth Universalist community and the West End community who have experienced anti-Semitism in different ways at different times. These stories will doubtless be difficult to hear, but we will witness them as a shared community. In the prayer Or Chadash, which is part of our daily morning liturgy in the Jewish tradition, we ask for new light to shine down, and we ask that all may prove worthy of such light. It's not enough to ask for the light. We have to also enact that light. As we begin to transition into the hearing of these difficult stories, I just ask that we all take a moment to breathe in together, to imagine our breath as light itself, and to breathe out to send that light into this space, into this room at 160 Central Park West, into the room that you're in, wherever you may be zooming in from. And in that way, to just brighten this room, brighten the spirits of all who are here, and to create a container to hold stories that will be difficult, all that we will feel, is a sacred expression of listening and of connection. So let's take a breath, put the light into the space, and we'll transition into hearing these stories.
1: My name is Bob Pollack, and um, I'm the acting president of the West End Synagogue, and it is a great honor to join you this way by Zoom, uh, and to celebrate our joint shared community of caring I want to tell you an, a personal story of antisemitism and how it affected my life, um, and I'll begin this way, with a question, what do we do when the will and imagination are being forced to believe the opposite of what the intellect understands? The late Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel of Jewish Theological Seminary tells us this in his book, 1962 book, On the Prophets, he says, Our sight is suffused with knowing, instead of feeling painfully the lack of knowing what we see. The principle to be kept in mind is to know what we see, rather than to see what we know. Here is how this principle helped me and my wife Amy through a serious confrontation with antisemitism at the very beginning of my career. In 1966, I got my PhD from Brandeis University, and Amy got her second degree in art there. We then came back to New York City with our daughter, and I became a postdoctoral fellow in pathology at NYU Medical Center. In the summers, we went out on Long Island to the laboratory at Cold Spring Harbor, where I taught a course on how viruses can transform normal cells into cancer cells. We spent the academic year 69-70 in Israel at the Weizmann Institute, and then we came back to a life at Cold Spring Harbor where I ran my own laboratory and found myself reporting directly to James D. Watson, Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory's new director. Yes, that James D. Watson, the co-discoverer of DNA. One of my administrative tasks was to help manage the laboratory's program of summer courses and meetings. So, it should not have been the surprise it was when I learned from Israeli scientists we had invited to attend a meeting that they could not attend as the event was to fall on the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. Now, this holiday did not carry much weight at all in terms of our own life then, but it seemed pretty clear that the laboratory had a problem if it had invited people who could not attend because of our choice of schedule. I went to Watson and laid out the problem. His response was simple, so simple I can remember it to this day, he said. You people own the banks, and you own the newspapers, but you don't own me. First, I saw what I knew. I knew that Jim Watson was my mentor, the most important scientist I am ever likely to know, and that I must live with this remark. Then I knew what I saw. I saw there was no point in trying to please such an antisemite. I was in a toxic situation and I had to get out fast. How did this turn out? I looked for an alternative job. I had only one requirement, it must have academic tenure because I had learned how vulnerable I was without that shield. Stony Brook Medical Center had recently opened and I was offered and accepted a tenured associate professorship in microbiology. On the one hand, this allowed me to avoid The condescension associated with life as an untenured assistant professor, but on the other hand, eastern Suffolk County was not really a place that made us feel wholly at home. So when Columbia opened the Fairchild Life Sciences building in 1976, I wrote to the chairman of biological sciences to ask if I could move my lab there, and yes, it worked. I arrived as a full professor in 1978, and I've been there ever since, thanks to knowing what I saw in the anti-Semitic words of my mentor, James D. Watson. Thank you.
2: As a member of 4th U, I'm honored to be here today to share some reflections from my Jewish upbringing on this last night of Hanukkah. There is an old film about this topic called A Gentleman's Agreement in which a reporter has been tasked with writing a story about anti-Semitism. To better understand this subject matter, he pretends to be Jewish to see just what it must be like to be a Jew in America in the 1930s and 40s. When others find out that he is Jewish, he loses acquaintances who at first didn't know about his faith and later on, he is turned away from a hotel that is restricted to serve only non Jews. In this way, the main character comes to find out that the very anti Semitism he was meant to explore for a newspaper article has, in fact, made his daily life nearly insufferable. I would imagine that many of us here have seen the film before. But in case you haven't, it's well worth seeing. I start today's conversation with this detailed plot overview because when the film was first released in 1947, my grandfather was 35 years old, which is just about where I am today. To this day, I can recall my grandfather describing what it was like growing up as a Jew in Toledo, Ohio to parents who didn't speak any English and who relied upon their children to navigate life in this new world. As difficult as it may be for us to imagine now, he still would not have been welcome in polite society because he was a Jew, even after the end of the Second World War. My grandfather's ability to become educated and gain employment were entirely predicated upon this fact of his religious identity. And the fact that he was able to lead a successful life at all was something he very much felt that he needed to fight for, rather than having the basic right to pursue that many of us feel that we have today. In my own life, I can recall many unfortunate moments of anti Semitism, whether small or large. Some of them seem silly, while others of larger gravity continue to give me pause today. I can remember, for example, a workplace incident where a fellow employee made fun of our Jewish manager as someone who wore a silly little hat simply because that person did not like being told what to do. Mind you, the Jewish man in question wasn't wearing a yarmulke to the workplace. Much worse, however, were the harsh words of a long acquaintance, someone who I thought I knew well, who called someone he didn't like a number of expletives preceded by the word Jewish. When I told him that I was in fact Jewish, he offered, oh, but you're not like her, as though for this reason, I shouldn't take offense. Then there are other comments I'm still not quite sure how to place, such as hearing a colleague who knows that I am Jewish tell me not to worry because our retirement fund is managed by, quote, Jewish men. Does one frown at this kind of comment for its stark stereotype or provide an awkward smile because it was meant to be a compliment? In these kinds of moments, where I have encountered anti-Semitism, Upon reflection, I now recognize that the sting of these comments and situations must be similar for any person on the receiving end of prejudice. Considered broadly, this would include every instance when people who do not like something about someone decide to blame it on their race, nation, or creed, rather than treating each person as an individual capable of acting on their own. While my grandfather came of age during a time period when he would have been denied access to so many opportunities and institutions, I cannot help but deeply appreciate how much easier I have had it as a result of social changes toward tolerance. While I have heard my share of anti-Semitic commentary, at no point Did any of these comments prevent me from following my own good in my own way? Just as we now are in the present age, safe to light our Hanukkah in the window of our homes, may we do our best to recognize that there are many other groups within our country or across the world who remain persecuted simply because of their beliefs or the color of their skin. May we take a moment this Hanukkah to consider how best to do our part to end all forms of prejudice in solidarity with our shared human community and the freedom to worship as we please.
3: I'm Susan Prager from West End Synagogue. Anti-Semitism, or the term I prefer, Jew hate, exists on different levels. It can be both personal and intimate and impersonal and political. I will address both of these starting with the impersonal, but ultimately all hate is personal. I was born in 1943. My father was a 1933 early refugee from Hitler. I can't remember when I didn't know about the Holocaust. He represented thousands of German Jews in their efforts to get reparations from Germany for the, for the atrocities that they had endured. I knew them, I knew their stories, and I knew how hard the German government worked to deny their claims. In order to get this benefit, you have to have been in a camp for at least 100 days, but you're only there for 98. You don't get that much. Two days, folks, not a big difference. The execution of the Rosenbergs, the only people put to death in this century, last century for espionage still stings. It was the only night in my family when nobody spoke. There was nothing that could be said. My parents were fearful of what was to come. My father who'd been teaching citizenship classes to immigrants stopped teaching. His faith in America, what little he had was shattered. I was raised to believe that someday I would have to flee and taught to always have my passport ready. That's how my father was able to escape. That is how I would be able to escape in the most basic way I take anti-Semitism for granted. It's always been there, it always will be. This is what I bring to the world. Now I wanna talk about it on the more intimate personal level. My violin teacher in the 1950s refused my parents' invitations to come to dinner she would not enter the home of a jew when she got engaged my parents felt it was appropriate nevertheless to give her a wedding present she came to the door of our apartment we gave her it was a box of china and we helped her downstairs her fiance sat in the car stony faced looking ahead he never said Thank you. He never acknowledged us. I'm an Upper West Side brat, but I went to college in Worcester, Mass. My closest friend there lived in Florida, but spent holidays with my family. She had family in Worcester whom she saw every Sunday. Guess what? In four years, I was never, invited to their home ever after we graduated we roomed together one day she was at our house and explained to my father that jews all jews were evil capitalists the worst of all capitalists and jews had to be exterminated gotten rid of if capitalism were to disappear After trying to reason with her, my father threw her out of the house. Needless to say, that pretty much ended our friendship. Lest you think this is history, let me speak about some more current issues. After 9-11, I walked into my Brooklyn College classroom and started to teach. A student asked me if I'd heard that all the Jews left the World Trade Center before the bombs hit, clearly alluding to this idea that we had planned the attack on the World Trade Center. I was nonplussed. A student, a fellow student said, you know, she is, and he said, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Another student in another class blurted out for reasons this day I don't understand. I'm so tired of all those Jewish values. She stopped and I went on teaching, but it was a bizarre moment. Last anecdote. When Brooklyn College started weekend classes, I volunteered to teach on Saturday or Sunday, whatever and one day i was walking to the subway after teaching and i heard one student say to another we need more weekend classes but you know the jews don't let it happen the jews control brooklyn college now i'm going to tell you a secret marketing controlled brooklyn college they got students to register they'd hold the classes but the jews Hate doesn't disappear, it changes. When I was in college, I was free to advocate to to free Soviet Jewry and to demonstrate in favor of civil rights. In fact, the head of the civil rights group at my college worked with me to get signatures to free Soviet Jewry. In the 1960s, this was a big issue. This kind of working together is not possible today at many colleges Where Jewish students find that if they are advocating a Jewish issue, they are kicked out of environmental groups, gay rights groups, other kinds of groups. This is painful to me as I remember my past, my college. Jews are seen as all powerful and evil, worthy of contempt. And responsible for all the bad of the world after all they say we sold the world on the Holocaust that never happened thank you
4: good morning my name is Alex Gordon I'm a member of the of fourth Universalist and I'm a white dude I'm Jewish and I'm Unitarian Universalist and um, you know when when reverend schuyler first asked me to do this i almost declined because i don't have the same kind of anecdotes about anti-semitism in my life that we've heard from that we've heard today and i'm i'm aware of that but i thought i could say something anyhow uh, I'm i feel very fortunate and i feel that my identity as a white person as a white man in particular in some ways is the first thing that people see about me and that that invisible cloak of privilege is what i've carried with me through my life uh, so when i've encountered discrimination when i've encountered anti-semitism in my life it has never been personally toward me it's been at um, a remove and i've been able to, to keep that separate. But in my family, uh, my grandfather left Russia in the, 19, in the 1920s to escape uh, pogroms, to escape being drafted into the Russian army where he would have died. And he came to Brooklyn and he was able to make for a life, a life for himself and to find some success. And my father did that too and I've been very fortunate to benefit from my grandfather's choice and his ability to escape. So, um, I actually, I have all these identities, and um, I, whether it's Judaism, or UU, or a teacher, or a husband, or a father, um, usually the one that people notice first is, is whiteness. Um, and, it, I am Jewish, and the thing that I, and I enjoy Hanukkah in particular, um, it's, I enjoy the story of light and the miracle that it brings. Uh, I like that story, of a light that stayed lit longer than it was supposed to, longer than anyone had any reason to expect, and I enjoy the story of an army that fought oppression and that resisted longer and won against odds that they shouldn't have won against. Uh, and I enjoy the tru- and as much as I enjoy lighting candles and singing songs and making and eating lakas, it's the notion of Hanukkah as a holiday about resistance and about fighting oppression that strikes truest to me. Uh, my favorite Hanukkah story, is by Isaac Bashevis Singer, a, a Polish, a Polish American writer, and he wrote a story called The Power of Light about two children hiding in a Warsaw ghetto, and they were living in a basement where if they were caught, they would have been executed immediately. And one night they come back to their basement and they found a candle, and it was the first night of Hanukkah. And despite all of the risks, they lit that candle and they they experienced that light, even though it could have gotten them caught and it could have gotten them killed. And that very light is what inspired them to escape that night. And in the story, they get very lucky. It was a moonless night and it was a cold night. So they were able to sneak out and find partisans in the woods outside of Warsaw. And on the eighth night of Hanukkah, all of them together despite the risks of being caught lit a menorah and celebrated. And I think it is that spirit of lighting a menorah despite the risks and despite the dangers that it can entail and of claiming our identity and shining that light for everyone to see that I like most about Hanukkah. Uh, That lit menorah is a beacon of hope and it's a reminder of all the people who resisted oppression and who still resist oppression, and who still fight it. And this idea of hope and of shining a light aligns with the best of both UU traditions and Jewish traditions, that we fight all kinds of racism, that we help all people, and that we acknowledge the value of all people, that we express our faith through through prayers and through our actions and how we carry ourselves in the world.